Only the grace of God can explain Charles Spurgeon. For 38 years, Spurgeon pastored London's Metropolitan Tabernacle. During his tenure as pastor, he often preached ten times a week in his own church or in other places. Plus, he frequently led evangelistic activities between services or on Sunday afternoons or weekday evenings. But the church also had many other areas of ministry that needed input from their pastor. Uh, an orphanage, the distribution of books. Um, he oversaw a large ministry that distrib uh, distributed books and pamphlets and tracts, many of which he wrote. Various almshouses, um, like soup kitchens, etc., those types of things, as well as other kind of gospel-driven social works. Spurgeon founded, and, founded and, and lectured in the Metropolitan Tabernacle's Pastors College, where he interacted regularly with students. The church and that college were active in mission activities in China, in India, in Africa, as well as countless other places. He wrote more than 140 books. He edited and published his own sermon each Lord's Day. He edited monthly the Sword and Trowel magazine from 1865 until his death. He also responded to something like 500 letters a week. I get overwhelmed with a dozen text messages. And then there were the normal pastoral activities. He weekly counseled numerous uh, prospective church members and he counseled anxious, uh, unregenerate souls who were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He did the work of an evangelist. And he was able to do all of this work despite living with a body that was often racked with painful gout and other various physical ailments. But worse yet, he, he suffered perennially from a deep and dark depression. A spiritual disease that the Puritans and Spurgeon himself called melancholy. Or even more descriptively, he would often call it the dark night of the soul. In his biography of Charles Spurgeon, Tom Nettle said that the Britain's greatest pastor was a living theology of suffering. Recently, I've been reading a book by Zach Eswine titled Spurgeon's Sorrows. Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. And in it, the author outlines Spurgeon's own struggle with melancholy. And he uses a, a ton of quotes from his sermons. He, he sets the, the legendary pastor as a, as a case study and, and manual for giving instruction on how to deal with what is all too common of an ailment. According to Spurgeon, there are essentially two types of depressed people. Those who are given to melancholy as a temperament and those who are driven to depression through difficult circumstances. He said, quote, Some of us are marked by melancholy from the moment of our birth. They are more difficult to cure, for desponding people can find reason to fear where no fear is. For Spurgeon, there was one event, however, that shaped his life and, and affected his life and ministry for the rest of his life. On October 19th in 1856, 
The, the church had outgrown their previous facility, and Spurgeon, who was 22 years old, was preaching for the first time at the, at the music hall of the Royal Surrey Gardens in London. And someone in the crowd of more than 7,000 people yelled, Fire! And it caused a stampede that left seven people dead and 28 people injured. After this, Charles Spurgeon was never the same. Parishioners and fellow elders reported that the incident had a serious effect, quote, on the nervous system of our pastor. From that point forward, Spurgeon suffered from bouts of what he would call deep melancholy until his death in 1892. And while he struggled with this for the rest of his life, sometimes he was even unable to preach. In fact, his elders would often send him away to the south of France for months on end to a warm and sunny place on the Mediterranean. Yet the chief medicine that he took to battle his melancholy was prayerfully focusing on God's promises of Scripture. And so in his, in his typical sort of poetic phraseology, uh, this one who is known as the Prince of Preachers, he pointed his congregation to the Bible as a lighthouse illuminating the dark and wind-tossed harbor of the depressed soul. He said this, he said, I like in my time of trouble to find a promise which exactly fits my need, and then to put my finger on it and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so by carrying it out in my case. I believe that this is thine own writing, and I pray thee make it good to my faith. I believe in plenary inspiration, and I humbly look to the Lord for a plenary fulfillment of every sentence that he has put on record. And this week, as we come to a portion of Scripture that, that really we need to put our fingers on and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so by carrying it out in my case, and I pray thee, make it good to my faith. In fact, this is a truth. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is a truth that the apostles clung to. This is a truth specifically that the Apostle John prayed would happen quickly. It's also a promise that for the past hundred years or so, especially in America, has been kind of flipped around and distorted. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're not already there, I'm going to read verses 50 to 58, the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would implant this truth deep in our hearts and our minds today, that we can hold fast to your promises. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase as we read through this, as we consider your word this morning. We pray this to be done all to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last week I read to you a portion of um, John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, specifically from his chapter on glorification. And in that chapter he writes this. I just want to remind you of one quick little thing. He says, glorification does not refer to the blessedness upon which the spirits of believers enter at death. It's true that then the saints, as respect to their disembodied spirits, are made perfect in holiness and pass immediately into the presence of the Lord Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. So when a believer dies, their spirit is, is perf- made perfectly holy, and immediately they stand in the presence of the Lord. But we all know that their body is still here, right? In fact, it is beginning to turn to dust. So while their spirits are in glory, this is not the glorification that the Bible speaks of as being the, the end result of our redemption, the end result of our salvation. Glorification involves the destruction of death itself. Again, Murray writes this, speaking of glorification. He says, It is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of the body and spirit we will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we... Sometimes we conflate what what will happen at death with with what the Bible teaches about the resurrection of believers, which is an event in the future that we all still, uh, still wait for. So when we think about this in this way, we can see why some believers might even reject a a literal bodily resurrection and, and instead say something along the lines of this. When you die, your soul goes to heaven, and so your body is useless. You'll finally be rid of that thing that has caused you so much grief. You might as well just cremate it because it's all just going to turn to dust anyway. But the Bible has a a higher view of the dignity of the human body than we often do. I don't want to get too far afield here because... Because it is what this passage teaches us as Christians is what we are waiting for. So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Well, to answer that question, we need to look no further, really, than the Lord's Prayer. I prayed this just a minute ago, but let me me read it to you from the King James, because probably this is what's in most of your heads when you start to say it. I know it's in mine. It's like, John 3.16, I can't can't recite it in any other version other than King James. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, do you know what the first thing is that Jesus asked for in that prayer as he's teaching his disciples to pray? He says, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So so here's the crux of the issue. There were church members at Corinth who denied that Christians faced an upcoming resurrection. Instead, they likely held to the idea that once a person, a believing person, a Christian died, their spirits went to heaven and then that was it. But Paul is saying that the present human body is radically incompatible with God's imperishable kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Even Christ has been raised. And if there's no resurrection, then not even he has been raised. This is Paul's argument throughout this chapter. And if not even he has been raised, then this whole religion is just out the window. This whole religion... Christianity is just useless if Christ has not been raised. And if it is useless, if Christ has not been raised, then there is no hope. So think about this statement. The present human body is radically incompatible with God's imperishable kingdom because of sin. Consider those words, okay, as I read to you, Um, From Romans chapter 7, for example, in in verses 13 to 24, Paul is writing this and and he's speaking about the law. So he says this, did that which is good then bring death to me? The law. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So the law points out our sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He continues, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So on the one hand, let's put these things together. Human body present human body is radically incompatible with God's imperishable kingdom because of sin and death. That's what Paul is saying there. So on the one hand, Paul is agreeing with the Corinthian notion that because of the sinful flesh, 
the fallen nature of humanity. We're prevented from being in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God in eternity. He's agreeing with that. But because they can't figure out how this could even be possible, they're saying, well, then there is no resurrection because that's not possible. They're they're completely wrong, and this is where Paul disagrees with them and corrects them. They're completely wrong in concluding that therefore there is no resurrection. Once your body dies, your spirit goes to heaven, and then that's it for your body. That's what they're saying, and Paul is saying, no, that's completely wrong. Our bodies, this body of death that Paul says here in, in Romans 7, our bodies, the body of death, cannot exist in eternity in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. So there must be a change. And since Christ is risen, He's risen indeed, we shall all be changed, Paul says. And so he starts off here in verse 50 with this phrase, I tell you this, brethren, brothers, brothers and sisters, I tell you this, fellow Christians. This is Paul making an emphatic statement. He's saying, listen up. He's saying, if you hear nothing else, hear this. And so what Paul is about to say is of vital importance. In fact, this is directly connected to that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, see the eternal consequence of Christ's resurrection is what he's about to explain here, what Paul is about to get into, at least for those for whom Christ died. And he does so kind of in both a a negative and a positive way. So let's start with the negative. Look at verse 50 again. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In, um, In the Jewish mind, the way that Paul thinks as he's writing this, the phrase flesh and blood, it generally describes the frailty of the human condition. See, in our flesh and blood, we are weak. We are decaying in sin and the results of sin. This is why throughout the New Testament, uh, especially, we read verses like in, in Romans chapter 8, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Consider also Galatians chapter 5, in verses 19 to 21, he writes this. Same author, Paul. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you remember from chapter 6 of this letter? Paul lays out a very similar list to that, and and he follows it up with, and such were some of you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
because that's living by the flesh, in our flesh and blood. But we need to be a little bit careful here because Paul doesn't use either the term flesh or the term spiritual in the way that we think, in the way that our minds work. See, Paul's not really concerned with what is or is not physical. Rather, he's saying that there are different realms of existence, that that these different realms of existence require different types of physical bodies. And so the question for this verse, verse 50, as we consider these things, is this. Um, In fact, let's put it this way. Are these two statements, these two um, statements in verse 50, are they saying the same thing or are they just simply complementing each other? Let me read verse 50 again. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Second statement is like it. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. On one level, they're saying the same thing, right? Flesh and blood are perishable. We understand that. We, we feel that probably every morning when you wake up, right? When you try and climb the stairs, whatever it is. Our flesh and blood is perishable. But the kingdom of God is imperishable. Yet this is more than that. He's saying more than just simply that. Here's what we mean. Flesh and blood here speaks of the living, who will be changed, by the way. And it also, uh, it's of those who live in the flesh and blood and yet cry out to God, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this flesh and blood of death, this body of death. And we need saving because we live in the midst of the curse and, and we live in a body that suffers the effects of sin and death. Contrast that with the perishable, which, which really here speaks of those who are dead. Paul is saying here that for both, both living and dead Christians, at the time of the resurrection, something's got to change. That's what he's saying. For both living and those who have gone before us, Christians, at the time of the resurrection, something's got to change. Neither living, kind of fleshy humans, nor dead Christians can inherit the kingdom of God. And and by this, by inherit, we mean that which is given by the Lord to his people, which is the kingdom, which is the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises which come when Christ returns as king and, and brings peace and righteousness and the destruction of all of God's enemies, including the last enemy, which is death. The body must be changed and even radically transformed before the wonders of the kingdom can be inherited. Now that was sort of the negative. On the positive sense, the rest of this section, verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You can sense Paul's excitement as he writes about these things, as he writes about this mystery. And and normally when Paul uses the word mystery, he's speaking of things that pertain to God's wisdom and his plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. 
And even now, as he continues to write this, this mystery has been revealed in Christ and is being revealed, literally, as the Holy Spirit leads Paul along here, as he is revealing this truth to us. So the first part of this mystery, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is verses 3 and 4, right? The gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the first part. The next part is this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul uses the word sleep as a um, kind of a euphemism for die. We understand that. He means die, but the reason that he uses it, he uses it a few times in his writing, and the reason that he uses it is because it implies a waking up again, Right? When somebody has fallen asleep, we hope they will wake up again. Paul uses it here to specifically so that we think of it that way, which is the sum total of really what he's been talking about, the whole chapter, the resurrection. Not everybody will die, but all will be changed. And clearly here, Paul believes that this could happen actually at any moment. He says, we will not all sleep. And the change that he's talking about when he says, we shall all be changed, he's talking about our glorification. We as Christians will all be glorified together. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, remember, says this, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is all the work of the Lord, right? In another place, Paul gives a little bit more detail of this resurrection. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read this for you. It's verses 13 to 18. And, and listen for the similar language, similar to what he writes here in uh, verses 51 to 53. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 says this. <coughs> Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, Similar language, right? That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They will, excuse me, <clears throat> they will awaken again. He continues, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, in neither of these places, 1 Corinthians 15, nor here in 1 Thessalonians, in neither of these places is Paul intending to give an outline or a, a timeline of events concerning Christ's return. He doesn't know when Christ will return. Clearly, he believes it's imminent. Notice, for example, he mentions nothing in either of these passages about God's judgment, which is all wrapped up in this. He's specifically talking to Christians in Corinth who are part of the church. Um, 
And really, in both 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is simply pointing discouraged and confused believers to the resurrection, to our glorification with Christ in glory for eternity. This will happen quickly and suddenly, unexpectedly. It will happen in a flash. And then it says that this will happen at the last trumpet. That doesn't necessarily mean um, the end of a long line of trumpets. It it means the trumpet that signals the end. This idea of a a sounding trumpet is is often associated with the, the manifestation of the presence of God. So, for example, at the giving of the law in Mount Sinai, um, when they were, uh, the, the people of Israel had received uh, the Ten Commandments and Moses is up on the mountain and, and he's interceding for the people as a go-between. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 20, we read this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled as they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He was telling them, don't don't fear. It's not the day of judgment yet. But there was a trumpet announcing that it was God. And at this resurrection that we read of here, that he is talking about, we will be clothed with righteous robes of glorification. That means means there'll be no more growing old. No growing weaker. No more growing increasingly unable to do the work that we were created by God to do. No more aching knees climbing the steps. No more wasting away. And I hope no more reader cheater glasses. Or any kind of glasses, right? But don't miss the continuity here. He says, this perishable body, this mortal body. We will be changed. We will be like Christ. Christ was recognizable. Christ was physical. He was real. He ate with the disciples. He said, look at me, touch me, see me. And this will all be when we are able to see a visible victory at last. A visible victory at last. Verse 54 When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at these verses, really verses 53 and 54, 54 almost looks like a repeat of verse 53, except that he shifts from uh, these things must happen to when it happens. 
See, the, the prophecy of verse 53 becomes the sure thing, the reality of verse 54. This is going to happen when the resurrection happens. Then the defeat of death will be complete. Paul is referring here, but really what he's doing is he's quoting or sort of doing a mashup of a verse from Hosea chapter 13 and also Isaiah chapter 25. And it is in this Isaiah chapter, this Isaiah passage, that the Old Testament prophet says this. So this is the passage that he's referring to. He's not really quoting it. It's more of a referring to. It's Isaiah 25. Just listen to verses 6 to 9. And and the prophet is speaking of the end. The prophet Isaiah is speaking here of the day of the Lord. He says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And it is on that day, It is on that day that the sting, the venom of death will be completely done away with. It was this sting that was absorbed by Christ and drained of all of its potency, drained of all of its venom, drained of all of its power. And so victory belongs to God and to his people who are the beneficiaries of all of this. The imagery here is striking, is it not? We love these verses. It's really kind of the end of 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? That imagery is something else. Death is almost, it's almost personified and then mocked. As if the victorious Christian is saying through gritted teeth to the angel of death, now what? Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. For the sting of death to be dealt with, sin must be dealt with. And Remember, death is the just wages for sin, right? The wages of sin is death. The ultimate problem for humanity is our disobedience to God's law. That's why we sometimes use the word transgression to refer to sin. In fact, in, uh, when it, in the Lord's Prayer, when it says, forgive us our debts, the ESV, I think it is, says transgressions, because that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, I owe somebody a couple of bucks. He's talking about the debt of sin, the transgression of God's law that we have transgressed. The breaking of God's law. See, the law reveals God's will, and therefore it reveals sin. Because we fail to live up to the law's demands. That's why I pray, um, 
I've started doing this over the last month or so. We, we have failed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. That, that, that's a summary of the law. Jesus summarized the law as those two. And we didn't keep them. We didn't keep them this week. At least in our minds. Probably in our actions as well. We have broken God's law. And the law reveals God's will. It reveals our sin. The law reveals our hopelessness and our inability to obey God's law. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. But don't stop there because verse 57 is next. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not victorious. Jesus is. And he gives us his victory. Praise God for verse 57. The Apostle Paul proclaims there in Romans chapter 7, who will save me from this body of death? His answer is the same. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important. This is, this is called imputed righteousness. Romans uh, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 explains it like this, comparing Adam and Christ as, as we looked last week in the last passage. He says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam sinned and therefore we sin. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, it is Christ who has saved us from this body of death. And one day soon, he will change us. He will deliver us from the curse of death. Therefore, therefore, stand fast. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This section, this verse, really, is the application of all that Paul has taught them in this chapter. This is, this is what we take home with us today. This is what we can do. We need to remember the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he, was, that he died for our sins, remember that part, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We need to remember that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We will all be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, we are to remain steadfast. Let me give you four observations of really just verse 58 and the application here. The first thing, the first thing that you need to see here, that we need to see, is that he loves them. Paul loves them. This church that Paul was uh, instrumental in planting, that he shepherded for about a year and a half before he finally escaped, not from the church, but from the persecution in town, this church has gotten nearly everything wrong. We've read through that through the first 14 chapters. 
This church has done everything wrong, but Paul loves them. He loves them as a father loves his disobedient and rebellious children. He loves them. He loves them even as they have wronged him, even as they have pitted other teachers against him, even as they've promoted immorality and and taken each other to court, as they've been swayed by false teachers and and have treated the Lord's table with, with a flippant contempt. He still loves them. Second, Christ is victorious. Christ is victorious. He is risen. He's risen indeed. So stand fast. Remember how this chapter started? Just look up at the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, brethren, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hold fast. You stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are his, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, if you have put your faith in him, stand fast, because he's holding you. Do you understand that? Hold fast to him because he's promised to never let you go. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. If you are his, stand fast. Third, because of the resurrection, we are, ab- we are to abound in building up the church. He- let me read this again. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He tells the church at Thessalonica in a very similar situation in writing, as I quoted from 1 Thessalonians earlier, he says this, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Part of the abounding of the work of the Lord is loving one another. Loving one another. Abounding in the work of the Lord is not optional for us. It's not optional. And and by the way, it's not just my job or the elder's job or the deacon's job. He tells the church that in light of the resurrection, we are to abound in the work of the Lord. In the 1980s, the best decade, bar none, DeGarmo and Key said it like this, We've got a job to do. We're running out of time to do it. you got a gift to use. Get out in the world and use it. I would change that slightly to say this. you got a gift to use. Get out in the church and use it. Because, and this is the fourth and final observation, none of this is in vain. I can't tell you how much I have needed this Even this week, this reminder. None of this is in vain. Jesus promised 
in Matthew 16, verse 18. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you know how Jesus is doing that? He's using ordinary people. He's using the ordinary means of grace. Week by week, we come together and we read and we sing and we pray. We preach. We love one another. We eat together. We laugh. We weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We just do ordinary life, right? But we do it together. He uses ordinary means to build his church. And he uses ordinary people. And nothing says ordinary like you guys. Us guys, right? He uses ordinary people and ordinary churches and the ordinary means of grace. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Pray with me. Father, as we... As we are reminded that we have broken your law, we rejoice that you have forgiven us. That you have canceled the record of debt that is held against us. That you have removed it as far as the east is from the west. In the, in the depths of the sea, it is, it is cast away from us. That we are yours, that there is therefore now no condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, that through the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have victory over this flesh and blood. The flesh that so easily leads us into sin. We do the things we don't want to do. We don't do the things we, we do want to do. And we only want to do them because you have given us those desires, because you've given us a new mind, the mind of Christ. On our own, we'd want to do the sinful stuff. So, Lord, we rejoice that you have given us the mind of Christ. We rejoice that you have defeated sin and death. We rejoice that, glorif that, 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 that glorified in Romans chapter 8 is in the past tense, that you have done this. And that while we wait to see you and be with you face to face, while we wait for that resurrection, while we wait to be in glory with new bodies that are, we, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Bodies that are no longer bound in sin, no longer facing death eventually. Father, we rejoice in, in Jesus' finished work on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, blood was shed, new covenant was established that we might be his, that we might be yours forever. You have, those whom you have predestined, you have called, those whom you have called, you have adopted as your children. You have justified us, Lord. You have redeemed us. And so as we come to your table today to, to rejoice, we come not, not in sadness, but we come rejoicing that you have established this new covenant with us, that you have promised to be our God and that we would be your people. 
and that one day we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so we long for that day, Lord, and we pray with the Apostle John, come quickly. But between now and then, Lord, that we would always abound in the work of the Lord, being about building up his church and loving one another. Lord, we pray that, that you would transform our hearts and our minds today to be like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.